Prolific, a collection of conversations with creative people about what compels them to make the things they do and how they deal with fear, uncertainty, and doubt along the way. I'm Joseph Rooks, and my guest for this episode is Adam Lehman, co-leader of The Wonder Jam, a creative studio that he and his wife Allie own in Columbus, Ohio. In our conversation, Adam and I somehow managed to connect the dots between blogging, pig farming, playing the stock market, roasting coffee, and becoming a more self-aware person. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Like one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is, you know, you and Allie have the Wonder Jam, you have your client work, you have the workshops that you all do. You also have side projects that you work on as an individual, right? Yeah. Yeah. What are some of those that you do? Uh, So for me right now, I have the coffee business, which is a fledgling thing. Give it a plug. What's it called? And and sort of how did you you get into that? Okay. Yeah. It's called Ardor Coffee, um, A-R-D-O-R. And I just got really obsessed with coffee. I walked into a place in Columbus, Ohio called One Line Coffee, whenever they opened like five years or six years or seven years ago. And that was the first time anybody had talked to me about coffee in a way that was amazing. And I just was curious. And so I kept listening to them. And every time I went in there, asked them more questions. I started roasting my own stuff at home. One of the times they had a barista who was working there who was like, hey, you want to try something? And I was like, yeah. And he poured me a small cup of a thing he had roasted at home. And I was like, how do you do that? And he said a bunch of stuff that I didn't understand, but I just started Googling and ended up ordering stuff, making it, sharing it with people. And then um, people started telling me, my friends started telling me, they're like, hey, I'm out of coffee now. And I was like, okay, well, I'll make you some more. So I started reloading people. And then it just turned into a thing where I was like, okay, now I'm spending a bunch of money making coffee for people who are just being nice. I needed to figure out some way that they could pay me so that it wouldn't just be me spending money to give people coffee on demand. And that's kind of where the the idea for the brand thing started. It was just going to be a thing we did at the office or at the studio to give like as client gifts or things like that. It wasn't meant to be anything. But starting a food business is very annoying. I could talk about that for a really long time, but if you want to get into that, that's interesting because I think, I think there are a lot of people, myself included. Um, yeah. Just regulation, regulations around packaging, processing, making food. There's just a lot to it and it's very difficult to understand. And it feels like to me, you know how taxes are hard to understand. It's like hard to make sense of. And if you talk to seven tax attorneys, they're all going to tell you different things or they're going to run your taxes differently. It's weird how it's gray and food is the same thing. There might be regulations, but how they're enforced are just very different. How do you go from casually making coffee for people you know and not really having to worry about that to getting to understand all of that so that you can sell it? I started doing my own homework because running a coffee business has put me in the seat that all of our clients are sitting in in that this is a self-funded thing. This isn't an investment. Most of our clients that we work with are not getting a bank loan or not getting money from their family. It's just coming out of their own bank account. And so I probably should have quit the coffee business a number of times throughout the process, but it's just such a useful exercise for me to understand what our clients are going through. So I was like, I don't understand what to do with this. Rather than going to find an expert to just tell me the answer, I'm going to go try and figure it out myself. That's really interesting because I think this example is a really good example of the value of purposely picking something that's really challenging and really difficult and complicated to do. Mm, yeah. Which a lot of people might shy away from that, but there's a, there's a real value in you know, being up to that challenge. Yeah. Being up for the challenge is what it's all about. 
we have um, a small membership group that we run for entrepreneurs. And just this morning, we always ask people not to promote themselves all the time because that's no one's trying to hear sales pitches. But about once a week or once every two weeks, we ask people to share what's cool that's going on. So people kind of are allowed to brag in that. Like we have like a one uh, sanctioned bragging space. And someone was like, I just got my first client. And so I started asking her about all of these things. And I was like, what are your... And she was like, yeah, I think I'll do a great job. Like she just was like, I got the client and that was the challenge. And as we kept talking, I was like, pick a challenge. Um, and I do this with my own work, but just pick a challenge for yourself for whatever that is, um, because you're going to get better because of it. And even as you talked about meandering through various projects uh, to evolve, I think part of once something is boring and repeatable and whatever, you can just do it without thinking. It's a good time to, you know, monetize that. It's what businesses try to build machines where we can just do the same thing on repeat. But as a creative person, it just gets really boring. It's hard to like wake up in the morning to do the thing that you just do all the time. So you got, you got to find a way to make it a challenge, something to improve or something to work on. And coffee for me, it's like this, sometimes when, depending on what day, if you ask me how it's going, I'd be like, I need to freaking just quit. I'd put a bunch into it and it doesn't pay me a lot, but it's just, it's good for me. So that sounds, that sounds a lot like some other friends that I have that are in the coffee business as well, but they just love it. They love it so much. And there are so many different variables you can control yeah. in the process where you could take, you could take the same exact bean and produce an infinite number of coffees from it based on the, the, the variables that you're controlling. It's wild. It's, it's unbelievable. And it's something that every, it's something that's a really high percentage of people interact with. And it's a product that people touch and interact with and, have an opinion about, um, but have so little of the education about how things can be different. And so it's pretty easy in the coffee world to blow somebody's mind. The first time I ever sold it, I just had a jar of Starbucks coffee, um, in this like airtight thing. And I had a jar of my coffee that I roasted the day before. And I just had people smell the difference. And they're just like, Oh, this Starbucks stuff is just smells burnt. And like, that's true most coffee that you would buy that's produced in a bulk quantity is going to be like that. It's just so rare that someone ever experiences two coffees at the same time next to each other. The intricacies are, it's insane. That's absolutely true. It's also, it's interesting that people have a lot of opinions on the end product, Yeah, but because they don't understand the process, they don't really know how it could be different. I had a friend who ran a coffee shop in Blacksburg for the years that I was at Virginia tech called chair coffee shop. And uh, he runs a roaster now called Strange Coffee Company, and they make some of the best coffee I've ever had. And I had the same experience the first time I went into his shop because it was right next to the apartment I lived in. Yeah. And when I wandered in there, he was just so passionate about teaching anybody who would ask a question, mm. just everything that they wanted to know and everything I know about coffee, I learned from this guy. Yeah. And the passion is just infectious. And one of the things that he said to me that was the most surprising thing I think he ever told me was that he was in business for about 14 years in that shop, two or three years in Starbucks moved in across the street from him. And it actually, it actually caused his business to go up because Starbucks getting bigger raised awareness of specialty coffee as a whole. That's crazy. And so people realized that there were options and that if you went to a place across the street from another place, the coffee was going to be completely different. Totally. 
Totally. Well, Starbucks is one of the few examples of a large corporation who expanded and took over everywhere and actually caused people to be okay paying three or four dollars for a cup of coffee or latte or whatever thing they were buying there, which up until that point, people were just buying Folgers or something, you know, that just wasn't happening that way. Right. If they had priced their coffee a little more reasonably. Yeah. I can't imagine the actual damage that that would have caused or the lack of growth. Like <laughs> I, I think there are a lot of coffee shops that set up in the in-between Yeah, and that they were able to thrive because Starbucks didn't capitalize on that. Yeah, no, that's true. True, true. I'm with you. Adam, why don't you tell the people that are listening a little bit about who you are and what your main work involves and then just rattle off a couple of side projects that you've been working on. My name is Adam Lehman. My wife and I started a small branding and photography studio in Columbus, Ohio called The Wonder Jam. And yeah, we do a lot of photography and design and branding and websites and a whole bunch of things for small businesses, just helping them with marketing and supporting them as they're growing. And um, I also have a coffee company called Ardor that I started probably... Legally a year ago, uh, two years ago, illegally, if you're the FDA listening to this, then don't worry about that part. I'll put an end user license agreement at the beginning. So it's like they can't, if they're, if they listen, they are agreeing not to prosecute you. Yeah. <laughs> that would be, if you had a podcast that had those terms and it held up, that would be fascinating. <laughs> but yeah, so we do that. I like to write. I also spend time doing, um, I so respect people who are professional creative writers and poets that I barely dare to call myself one, but I spend some other parts of my free time doing that. But all of that is forthcoming and not shared publicly yet. <laughs> Those are probably, that's probably the main ones, main little side projects. Yeah. And so within the Wonder Jam, you also have a membership program that you put together. Yeah. Could you, right, right. Could you tell yeah. me a little bit about that and how that sort of came about out of the business you were already running? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I So with the Wonder Jam, we started off doing websites and photography for people. That was like our main thing and logos. And then as we worked with more small businesses, people would show up to hire us. Um, before it was financially wise and smart for them to invest money with us doing those things. Um, and so I started doing coaching one-on-one, not because I was smart, but just because for a lot of people who are starting a business, either branding or a lawyer or an accountant uh, end up being like that first thing they go buy or purchase. And um, we just found ourselves being like the first people somebody was talking to and we wanted to help them, but those things we were offering didn't work. So I started doing coaching with people just to like help them navigate and strategize before they start investing in things. And, so from there, we started doing workshops, mostly because we were working with such small businesses that the owners or founders didn't have any choice but to learn to do things themselves. So they couldn't afford to hire somebody to do it or it wasn't wise to do at the time. So we started doing a lot of workshops. And then as we did more of those, we started putting some of that content online for people who couldn't make it all the time. And then we started to formalize putting more of that content online and selling that individually and then we ended up with what we call now the Diamond Membership, which is a yearly annual membership 
and we have uh, every month we come out with different capsules of content around a theme. So the first month's theme was upgrading your visuals. The second was getting more clients. The third was creating content. The fourth was ads and analytics. And we just kind of have these conversations with a lot. It's like a rambunctious group of DIY people who want to DIY their business. And we love those people, but because they wanted to DIY it, they just never turned into clients for us. Um, and this was a, just a nice sort of medium to support what they were doing. Um, our developer Matt is working on a, uh, a whole bunch of content right now to like teach people to do exactly what he does with all of the tools that he does. So um, we're going to try and train some copywriters and see if they can't build their own websites uh, in like very impressive ways. So all of that's just, we just have been um, my parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles are all business owners and alleys were the same. And so it doesn't take a psychologist like six minutes to figure out we just were drawn from a some deep level to take care of and be around those those spaces so um so yeah were you involved in any of their businesses growing up family yeah 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 when i was growing up i grew up on a farm and we didn't have like we didn't have crops we had animals and we had a couple thousand pigs on our farm and I started doing 4-H when I was around nine. And I, I was, had pigs the first year. That was like the thing I did in 4-H, which is 4-H is like a uh, ag group that talks about farming and all sorts of things. It's, is it kind of like agricultural Boy Scouts? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And so with that, my dad, and I didn't remember what he was doing and I didn't understand why he made me do this until now I get it. Um, but he walked me down to, and my dad wasn't a, uh, he didn't go to college and he was a farm kid. And I always tell the story or he's told the story of, you know, he went to, he went to high school half the time because the other half the time he was like hunting or working on a farm. So he wasn't even in high school 90% of the time, if that makes sense. Um, so he, he walked me to the bank and him and I sat down and I got a small business loan to be able to buy, I think nine pigs, you buy them when they're four weeks old and then um, sign a contract with the local feed mill about getting feed for them. Um, and then I would pay once I sold the pigs, um, which is a pretty common thing. And so I got, I had all this money um, in my account that I was buying feed and pigs and all this stuff for. And then when I sold them, um, I went and I got the check and he made me, he walked with me to the bank. We had this tiny local bank and hand, I cashed it and I had this huge chunk of cash in my hand. And then I walked over to the feed mill and gave them, you know, 80% of it. Right. Uh, and then, you know, paid all of my other stuff. And then and I also had to pay back the loan. And so I ended up with like this, you know, a very small percentage of all of that cash that was in my hand at one point. Um, which was a brilliant thing. So then every year after that, I got more and more pigs, was making more money, ended up having like at age 16, I had a lot of money in my bank account and ended up buying pigs. They're four weeks, four weeks old at the highest point in history, sort of during my childhood and then selling them at the lowest point in history um, during my childhood, which had been like the equivalent of buying a house in 2007 and selling it in January of 2009. Um, just like, so I went, I lost everything that I had built over that. Wow. Which I was like 16. I didn't care. Like it didn't matter to me, um, at all. 
that's when I was 16. It was just, this is just like a wild thing. The same thing happened in the, so the stock market became a thing um, with the advent of the internet. It just became a lot more accessible to people. I and my dad started putting money into stocks, which we had avoided because we were like, it's too risky. We just understood pigs. You know what I mean? Like we got that world. It didn't make sense to us. Like why, if I give money to some huge company, I get some kind of return. Um, but we started doing that cause we're like, well, screw it. If this is so risky, well, we might as well do go do this. Um, made a bunch of money and then the tech bubble thing. And I lost almost all of that as well. I think at the end of high school, I ended up with like $1,300 that I used to buy a computer that I took to college. Um, but so that was just with my dad on the farm. I also worked inside of my aunt and uncle's restaurant and my grandpa's, um, he has a manufacturing company that manufactures uh, fireplaces in Indiana. And so I worked inside of that. Um, Allie's grandpa had a bunch of businesses. He just was a little entrepreneur man before that was like, he would have been very, um, he was always just involved in stuff. He was like, he's a, a financer of the, I want to be like Mike song. Like <laughs> just this random stuff that you're like, how do you get involved in this? Um, Allie's mom ran like a little, probably a legal bakery out of her kitchen uh, for a little while. You know, it's just like all these, these people, just people who are like doing their own stuff, doing the stuff they wanted to. There was no, there was no like grandiosity around the idea of being an entrepreneur. They were just doing something because they had the opportunity and they saw it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not even like, not even that just they wanted to, I, I just think all, doing your own stuff and being responsible for your own income or lack of it or whatever just has always made sense in my head. And I had a couple of jobs out of college that I was salaried and I, that just felt odd um, that when I like worked my ass off one month, my paycheck was the same. And when it was, when I slacked it was the same, although that was kind of nuts. So all that to say, like we just got in, to that easy. Allie, when she was like a kid, she was like pretending to run a dry cleaning business. She would like take her dad's suit and like wrap it in plastic. I'll have to ask her about that. Yeah. But it's just this thing that's like, now we're in our thirties and I'm sure you experience a similar thing where people act like you're weird because you're just different than maybe what the normal nine to five person sitting inside of a job is thinking about or caring about. Um, but for us, that just was, it was a very normal thing that our families embedded. I don't even know if they did it intentionally, but that just comes from, it's just been that way. My parents and my grandparents were just always talking about doing the right thing, customer service, treating your customers well. And if I ever worked somewhere where I couldn't do, like I wasn't empowered or didn't have the authority to do the right thing or what I thought should have been done, or I just freaking, I go crazy. We just have ended up doing a bunch of stuff and the wonder gym now has been at a place where we can just serve people. Let's get to that in just a minute. Okay, cool. Before we go there, I'm curious about your educational background. Uh, how did you go from being on a farm to school and what did you study and <laughs> sort of what was the reason for getting into studying what you did? Do you know the answer to my question already? I don't actually. This is I feel like, yes, I did at some point, but it's not coming to me right now. Like, yeah. I'm sure I've looked at your Facebook and seen like where you went to school, but I don't actually know. Off the yeah. Um, I went to a school in Indiana, a small school called Taylor University, which is a, a very, um, I'm going to say Christian education. Um, 
but probably the version of Christianity that's mostly Republican more than Christian, if that makes sense. So like Liberty. Yeah. Less than Liberty more than, yeah, there's like a spectrum inside of that world. And Liberty is, has far more policies about it. Um, at Taylor was more cultural. Um, anyways, but I went there because when I was in high school, all the people who had a ton of fun were like youth pastors and they just played dodgeball and had parties all the time. And I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> and then I remember in eighth grade, I wrote, a, I wrote a paper. I like wrote about why I wanted to be a youth pastor one day. And I couldn't understand why other people had different career choices than me. Like it didn't, it, like it didn't make sense to me. Um, and so I went there and I also played football when I was there. So that was part of me choosing that school ended up being that, but but so I studied, my degree is in what is called Christian Educational Ministries, which is, you can think of it as pastor school, except we studied a lot of educational theory. So a lot of things that teachers were studying, um, we also were dabbling in those, those things as well. Um, maybe less on the like theology and telling us what everything means. There was plenty of that um, and more on here's how you like effectively educate people. And so how did you go from that to doing what you're doing now? <laughs> this, is, this is brilliant because I tell pieces of the story all the time and I don't ever get to string them together. So um, actually, hold on. But let me just point out, doing what you do now, you, you probably, if you really wanted to, you could probably do all of that fun stuff oh, that you yeah, wanted yeah, to do yeah, as yeah, a minister. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. You and Allie could play dodgeball on a random Tuesday if you wanted to. Oh, definitely. Yeah. No, I don't, feel, I don't, I didn't, I don't feel like I've lost anything um, from that previous career track. <laughs> um, and I, honestly, truthfully, I think it makes it, when we do workshops, I think it, it puts us, that stuff is very comfortable, like running events and things like that. So I'm very at ease in that space. That's really interesting because I think that really fits in with the stuff I'm like, I think that really fits in with the ground I'm trying to cover with this show where I'm trying to show people how something that may be completely unrelated can actually make you stronger in a way that you're not expecting down the line when you're doing something that you never expected to be doing. Yeah. I hope people feel that way. Um, so when I was in college, I ended up reading blogs written blogs were like just starting to become a thing. Um, Facebook wasn't even a thing yet. It was, yeah, it wasn't a thing. Um, social networks. What was your, what was your first year in college? 2005. Okay. Yeah. And face, we, our college, our campus got Facebook in like 2006 or seven. Um, I think seven, but it, it still wasn't a social network yet. If that makes sense. Like email was, a thing. Email was like the thing, the connector online. There were like chat rooms that existed. And then there were um, what ended up becoming blogs where a person kind of hosted their own thoughts. And I found a bunch of blogs I thought were cool. And I, it was this new thing that was like, oh, these websites update every day, um, whether it's news or whether it's, you know, just an individual author who was writing things. And so I started to find the blogs of people whose books we were reading in class. And the books we were reading were like, you know, five to eight to 10 years old. And I was reading what that author wrote yesterday or last week. Um, and so I would be in class and we were talking about um, religious things and, you know, the, they would make a point or we'd be studying this book. I was like, yeah, but yesterday he said this, um, you know, 
12 years ago, he said this thing, but yesterday he said this. And I was, I think I was very like frustrating to the professors I had. And I ended up with um, just understanding that that medium was so powerful to start connecting with people. I made my own blog about church related things. Um, and I, it was crazy how quickly I was able to get comments and interaction with other people who were far for, much further along than me in their career or had been doing it for a long time. Um, and they would support things that I was doing or they would say like, Oh, that's a great thought or that's smart. Um, and it just became much more effective at communicating information or learning new things than whatever I was doing in school. And, and just to put that in, just to put the comment comment into context, this was before social networks were, you know, this was before Facebook and Twitter and all that, where we had easy ways to spread our stuff around. Yeah. So what, how were people finding you? Was it through like callbacks? Yeah. Just through my participation on their blog. And then they would, you know, it's. And leaving comments on their stuff and it would lead them back to you. Yeah. Back before Twitter, Facebook, Instagram were a big way to share all of your stuff and all that's where all the comments happened. Um, it used to just be everyone just commented on blogs individually. Um, so I ended up having this notebook of uh, the sheet of paper next to my computer at my dorm room in college. And it just had a list of all of the blogs that I like to read every day. And I would go to my browser um, and I would type in that web address every day to check to see if they'd written something new and it became this like daily routine. And I, so then I was like, how do you make one of these things? That's crazy. Um, and I, if anyone's tried to make a WordPress site themselves, they've probably done this where I downloaded WordPress onto my computer rather than like uploading it to a hosting service. And I just opened it and I was like, just confused out of my mind. But so I started just like figuring it out myself. No one was there to teach me. I just was reading other articles online. Um, and then I made Allie, we were, pretty seriously dating at the time. I was like, you got to get a blog. She was like, why? And I was like, cause a lot of designers do. <laughs> and then that was about it. You have to get on Twitter. Um, graphic design for a long time. Graphic design was like the number one, um, two word phrase ever used on Twitter. It was just a lot of designers who were using it. I remember I met a lot of designers through Twitter in 2006, <laughs> 2007. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's like, it was the, it was the wild, wild west. And it was just so easy to talk to people and it was fun. And it was not, you know, it's just, it was simple. People weren't even like crazy celebrities yet or the, to the point where they would ignore their comments. You know, um, that's like relatively new. Right. If you were a celebrity on Twitter, you wouldn't even have a million followers. And there was a pretty good chance that if somebody said something to you, like there was a decent chance that unless you were like Beyonce or the president, yeah, who wasn't even on Twitter at the time, yeah, that they would actually say something back to you. Yeah, no, that's it is it is the truth. Um, so that was beautiful, and I just became obsessed with how powerful that was and how it kind of um, democratized the. You know, I was sitting in one arena inside of classes, listening to people who hadn't done what I wanted to do professionally for ten years. Um, read books that were 15 years old about things that were written 2000 years ago, or I had a conversation, uh, you know, in my dorm room with people online who were doing exactly what I wanted to be doing in five years. They were doing exactly that. And they were in it. If that makes sense. They were, they were the practitioners, not the philosophers of the, of the thing. And I just got excited about connecting with those people. And then I just became an advocate for everybody making a blog or reading blogs. And I just, I made, I helped Allie make hers and I made one for a friend for $0. And then he had another friend who was running for office. So I made one for him for a hundred dollars and 
I just kept setting up WordPress for people, um, basically. That's awesome. It's, it's interesting, the timing of that, because that's right at the line in the sand where the internet went from being a weird fad to, oh, this is, this is real. This is for real. That is, that is, it's thinking about it like as a longer arc than, you know, what is it like now? But thinking back, it's really, I graduated college in 2008, which then I graduated into a recession, um, which was like the next evolution of this story. But the, I remember that I was in the same place. I was 2004 to 2008. Yeah. Yeah. So I dropped out but I was originally architecture. Mm. Like I watched everybody that I was in class with get a job Yep. and then get laid off the next year. Yep. And everybody who graduated after those classes just couldn't find work. And they, a lot of them ended up going into completely different areas, different professions entirely. It was a great reshuffling. So I, I was um, between, or I was always looking for jobs. I, I got a job straight out of college um, as a youth pastor in a, at a church in Columbus. And that's what I ended up doing. Um, but kept pretty connected to the digital face of the whole thing. As I was looking for a job to do besides work at the church, I was like, Oh, I can help companies get their social media going. There's a couple of people who are doing it. Um, in 2008, when Barack Obama ran for president, he famously used Twitter, he used social media really well. Um, when other people weren't even touching it. And, um, the, I was like, Oh, I can help companies do this. And it was crazy how much it was like pulling teeth to get a company to think of like, why would I share things that often? Or why would I talk to any, you know, like, why would I do that? Even large brands like at that point didn't have like a real, they didn't have something going on, if that makes sense. Totally. And so it, it, just, it took a while. And now all of the stuff I help people do like social media changed, but it didn't, the, the principles of it didn't change. You still talk to people and you still have to make interesting stuff and do something somebody cares about. And so it's, it's, to me, it feels like I have been on this thing telling people to do stuff for this, this, I've been saying the same thing for however, whatever is it, 13 years. And it feels like the world is caught up to it now. Which is great because then you get the satisfaction of pointing to that and saying, look at this, I'm historically correct. So <laughs> when I say something yeah. a, a year or two from now, you should probably take me seriously. Hopefully, yeah. Um, it is satisfying. It is also like exhausting in another way. But, you know, that's the challenge of the whole thing. What's exhausting about that for you? Is it just that you're perpetually waiting for the thinking to catch up to you or, <laughs> yeah. or, or, or thinking that you're wrong. You're like there's, you know, it's not like when I take a strength finders test, futuristic is one of my top five. Um, mm. and I'm not like a, I like personality tests. I'm not an evangelist about any one of them. Uh, but so I'm just like that. And I, yeah, I use my future brain a lot and I don't, I'm not always right, but you know, not everybody, but not everybody is the same as me. And I think people who hire us like that I think differently than them um, or I'm covering a different area of ground that they're not covering. But yeah, you said, you said I'm not always right. Let's talk about that a little bit because I feel like there is, there's almost like a stigma around being wrong when you decide to get into something. Yeah. But actually being wrong and being able to adjust is probably one of the biggest 
predictors of whether or not a person's going to be successful. I think like being willing to be wrong and take the risk, mm. knowing that you can just change course if you're already in motion. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's so true. I think the most, um, you know, I use the app that's called time hop that shows you, mm-hmm. you know, something you posted a year ago or two years ago. Um, it, which is just a really good reminder for me. Um, because I don't, I don't live inside of, um, a religious context ever. Uh, there's a couple of religious organizations that we have done work with, uh, as the wonder jam, but I don't, we treat them the same way we treat every other business we ever work with. Um, every day I'm reminded of things I posted eight years ago when I was very um, adamant about my opinion, you know, sitting inside of that world. And um, I, there's so many cases where I've seen repeatedly times where I predicted a wrong thing or I was on, I had an opinion that I for sure don't hold now. You end up having a pretty, it's pretty sobering if that makes sense. I feel like, you know, that that's almost like a full circle thing for you to realize that because yep. that's very similar to the experience you described being in college, reading 15, 20 year old textbooks, and then seeing that the the author of that book, maybe is thinking about something had changed over the last 15 years. Oh, most, most definitely. That is probably why I don't hang out in religious context now is you see how people's thoughts change. And, you know, um, some of the older religious texts that we read in any religion, we don't have that author's evolving thoughts uh, on record. We just have, you know, the one book they wrote in 1612 that got passed around a lot at the time for whatever reason. Um, but now if we, now we just have evidence to people's evolving thoughts and ideas and we can see how people change and how you can be really um, adamant about one thing and then, and then all of that shifts. Now that you're aware of that as sort of a dynamic, you know, you have an app that reminds you that that happens to keep you mindful of it. Yeah. Are there any things that you do in your day-to-day life or just on a regular basis to, to keep you focused on the things that you want to evolve or change about yourself or any things that you do to figure out what needs to change? Yeah, there's three practices that stick in my head that bring me back to what am I working on? The first one is journaling after work or my work day or even after a specific meeting. Uh, So if there's some kind of insight or something that's interesting, um, for example, last night I had a meeting and I ended up journaling. Wow, we have three people who have all shared this same problem. This is something I should write about or this is something that seems to be more than just one person struggle. Either this is universal or it's specific for this time period. So staying more focused in on what other people need help with rather than whatever harebrained idea my brain wants to run off with um, keeps me grounded and centered. Working with Allie is something that keeps me centered for sure. Her and I have opposite personality tests and opposite wiring, opposite sleep schedule, opposite a lot of things. And being able to not just hang out at a house with somebody, um, but also be collaborative with and treat somebody as equal, as an equal is a centering thing. I think marriage can be, if it's done well, uh, if, it's, if it's thriving, can be a centering activity. And then the other thing is just listening. It, it just so much as listening is staying reading and 
trying to listen to voices that are much different than myself. This year I've been on a, a kick of reading not white male authors. Um, and it's fascinating. Can you give some examples of things that you're reading? Yeah. So right now I'm in the middle of um, women who run with wolves, which is like a beautiful thing that is inspiring and awesome and full of amazing stories that there's no reason these stories don't activate uh, the male imagination as well as a female, like the, the, the person, the people inspire me and I am not a female. And so um, that has been cool and trying to find uh, there's another book called the power, which is just like floored me, um, which has been um, it was a book that is, I'm not, I just don't want to give any of it away. It's so good. It's uh, if the gender roles, like if, if, if patriarchy flipped on its head and now men were a little fearful when they walked around alone by themselves at night, being unable to defend themselves. um, It's uh, it's a cool, it's a cool thought experiment. Um, So those, that, those practices have been cool and it's not difficult to find those um, voices inside of, um, either self-help or nonfiction or things like that. I mean, it's, you have to do some work. Um, but finding those voices inside of leadership or business books is very difficult. Um, there are a ton of white dudes who are putting out their, you know, um, whose stuff seems to be at the forefront when you're going through books on leadership or books on business building and things like that. And so I've just been on a little hunt, um, not that successful to try and find uh, resources that are written by those people. So I was in as to sort of wrap up that thought, but the thought was I try and stay centered by listening to people who are not me um, because it has helped me understand where my futuristic brain or my strategic brain or how my wiring is useful. And then how it also might be, um, a bias that I'm bringing to the table. And I think you just, we just all have to figure out, you know, where our superpowers are most useful, most helpful and where they are, you know, blinders and where their weaknesses. And we got to figure out how to navigate all of that. That's really interesting. Um, actually, that makes me wonder for a lot of people that are trying to do something, they have a creative project or maybe they haven't even figured out what their thing is yet, but they want to try. Yeah. It's really hard to tune out the voices of the people around them. So you're advocating listening to people who can help you grow in the direction that you have chosen to grow, not, not listening to just anybody who wants to run their mouth. Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. And I even say, um, taking the recommendations of people who are where I would like to be someday. So not even some of the books I pick up, you know, in my circle of, people in the world I grew up, I grew up in a town where there was literally not, there was only white people and pigs and uh, yeah. And pigs. And I went to a college that was like, besides I'm there just wasn't many, not white people. Um, and then I moved into Columbus, Ohio, which is kind of diverse, but it is Ohio still. Those voices haven't always been pushed to the forefront in front of me. And so I've had to not just necessarily find books that I'm like, okay, who is a not white dude that I want to listen to, but finding non-white males um, that I would like to listen to 
or who I respect. And I'm just being like, Hey, help me, help me find resources to put in front of our audience and our people and myself um, to help round out my, to help me keep the blinders off. Um, And I get really good recommendations there. I don't get very good recommendations if I just Google business books by not white dudes. What's the practical effect of, of that for you, of you pursuing these, these works that basically represent people that are as different from you as can be? That's, that's a good, that's a question. I don't even think I know the answer to. Well, most 90% of our business is women. Um, our 90% of our clients are women. Um, you know, a percentage of our clients are not heterosexual um, or are on some kind of spectrum uh, there, just not the norm, I guess, or traditional relationships. Um, we have, and a number of our clients are not white people. And when I'm recommending resources or um, people for them to contact or all of those things, I, I know that I represent a white male uh, who has a shaved head and a beard, which is like a stereotype now. Um, and I know that if I just come at them with like eight books, they should read all written by white dudes that, you know, one, I just might lose credibility in their eye, even if that's not true, even if it's nine fantastic books that are all really helpful and useful. Um, but if I have never, you know, if I haven't hung out in another place, you just grow, your perspective goes weak and thin and um, not that useful and boring. I think, um, you know, if, if the only 10 podcasts you listen to are by white dudes, it's just, it's almost like at some point in the world in 2018, the world we live in, it should just become obvious that we're blinded, you know, like it, there's enough awareness where you're like, this has got to be a problem. Even when we have a workshop um, here at the studio um, this hasn't happened in a while, but uh, in a couple of years, but if it was ever just all white people, I'd be like, all right, we got to be missing something. Like what's happening that this is what we're getting on the other end. Not that it's a crime that, you know, there are white people here, but are we missing out on a lot because of something we don't even realize we're doing or not doing? Yeah. And it's not about political correctness or, you know, it's not about being political about it. It's just about, it's just about empathy, right? It's about understanding yeah. the people in your community and trying to serve them. Yeah. There's, there's a book called Ishmael that I like a lot and I share with a lot of people. And um, in it, there's a large gorilla who tries to reason with like a 27 or 30 year old man um, who's trying to figure out how the world works. Um, which is, so that's just a funny scenario. But the whole book is just a dialogue between the two of them. And um, in it, uh, the author of it was advocating for sustainability in um, relationships, nature, college, like all the world. And the biggest thing is in all living species, in all existence, life, uh, diversity is a sign of health, not a sign of weakness. Is if you walk into a forest and there's only grass, you're not in a forest. Like you don't go into the most thriving systems and find just one type of anything. And um, I think it's, it's a sign of weakness and fragility in our world when we don't have a diversity of thought 
surrounding us. I am a white male and I'm just doing, I'm a straight white male and I'm just doing what I can to not be fragile in that way. I think caring about that kind of thing is worth it just for fighting against the fear of otherness that people have when we're all apart. I think that is probably the thing that makes it most worthwhile to me. Yeah. Because so much of what I care about is about making people feel less alone. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's got a different angle on it, but I think diversity in plants or bugs or mammals. One of the examples that I think I always come back to is we have this idea that like, uh, it's not an idea, it's a fact, uh, that a lion will eat a gazelle, but why doesn't the gazelle go somewhere else, live somewhere else where there's not lions? Even in of the violence and craziness of nature, the diversity exists there. Um, and the lions don't wipe out the gazelle. You know, there's like this, there's this thing where people, animals, plants are all trying to individually thrive. And, but we also don't need to like beat each other up in our own individual growth. Uh, and the diversity helps everybody. It makes the whole, it makes everything stronger um, from work to trusting each other to being happy and all of that stuff. You know, we, by us not having only white male businesses that we've worked with is the reason 90% of our clients are women. Women feel safe working with us. Um, and I look like, you know, just stereotypically the type of person doesn't always make women and minorities feel safe, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And so I think there's, there's a strength that comes from all of that. Um, and I'm always advocating for that because uh, things that lack diversity die quickly. They might thrive for a short amount of time, but like in, in the plant world, one cold night or in the animal world, a drought it just wipes out an entire species. And you see this happen in businesses all the time where you see um, Blockbuster lack diversity. They just, they had one thing. And that thing was really cool, made a lot of money, and now that thing's gone, and now the brand's gone, and now the, everything's gone. Um, and that was like a quick breath in history that it was useful and meaningful. Um, and I just, you know, I want to, the world I live in and the relationships I have, whether or not I'm selling websites or coaching or memberships, um, I would like to, to continue longer than just, you know, through the transaction. And so I think that the reason for sustainability from a practical standpoint is that um, if I can develop a strong relationship, strong community online, offline in my business, next to my business in my city, um, I will thrive for a long, like it's good for me for a long time. Even if I might be like sacrificing some short term type of gain um, by doing that for sure. Definitely. Wow, that was really good. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about your writing because you you pointed out you're not a professional writer, yeah, but you do a lot of writing and it's useful, practical, good stuff. So how did you get into writing the way that you do? And what is your process like for that? Right. And why does it matter to you in spite of the fact that it's not something that you have been doing as a profession? I started writing because I was just... Um, well, part of growing up in pastor college is you learn that 
you you are taught to believe that your thoughts and opinions on things are very important and you should share them. Um, it's important for you to share that stuff. And so that was always an assumption that I realized not everyone carries with them. Um, but that was one I always had that sharing stuff was good. When I was like uh, 12, I filled in for my grandpa preaching to a retirement home thing for like 25 minutes. And I was teaching all of these like 85 year old women how to be good people. And I was like, what the, this is like, now I think about it as the craziest thing. Do you think they, do you think they figured it out? Do you think they caught on? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I hope they were, I hope they were able to make something of that. I remember what I talked about, but I just remember being like, I, I couldn't think of what they, like, I didn't have any ideas for them, you know, like how to be useful and productive members of the community. Um, I was just like, I don't know. You guys can just pray. Cause even if you can't like, you know, walk around that much, you can at least do that. Um, all of that to say is I always felt like sharing my opinions was important. Uh, what I realized is that I liked, uh, being married to Allie and watching her have her own passions of painting and writing and doing creative things and just having, uh, being close and connected to artists. I was always admired their ability to be expressive, but I wasn't always able to be expressive myself. I could teach somebody something but I had a hard time expressing what was inside of me. Was that just something you experienced or was that something that you said to yourself and believed that you weren't as good as other people at expressing yourself? I was good at speaking and I was always good in social settings. If we were at a bunch of people, you know, I'd do a good job socially. Um, I always, I wasn't always very in touch with how I actually felt or my own emotions or my own preferences, desires, opinions, things like that. And it took a lot of self-introspective work to get in touch and realize that those things were there. And then um, creative writing or poetry or something like that has always been a, just a clean, nice exercise to get the... You know, sometimes you like just go play basketball with friends or you go like run or on a walk or something. You're like, it's just good to like get the blood flowing. Um, writing for me is the, a medium that just helps emotionally and creatively get the blood flowing so that when I'm doing things for clients now, I am able to be a little bit more poetic in my writing or a little bit more interesting in the stuff that I'm putting together. Um, more playful, more... I have more fun with it. Um, I'm not writing blog posts to try and write seven points and explain them the best. Um, but I'm writing because I feel like it and I hope it makes somebody feel something, which is something that creative, the creative writing practice, which has been pretty consistent for three years has been something that has helped me. I think be true to myself and be true to what I really care about. And um, yesterday I was talking to a potential client and, she looked, she looked at me and she was like, she was talking to a bunch of other business coaches at the same time. And she has a gigantic business and probably could coach me through things. And she wanted to talk to me because someone said she should, but I was kind of like, I don't know, you seem like you're looking for answers that I don't even have experience interacting with. And she looked at me, she's like, I can tell you have a soulful way of going about your work. And that is something that is newer in my history than earlier, even though my first career was like soul work. Um, it is it just a continual excavation of those things. And so writing for me has just been a daily thing where I just promise myself to write 
I don't promise anything besides that. Um, sometimes I write things for myself. Sometimes I write poetry. Sometimes I write what I wish would be rap songs one day. Um, I've even recorded myself over some beats and it is not something that I find enjoyable or I feel interested in sharing. Um, but getting that out into the world, um, I just feel like I've gotten a better command over my own voice and it just rings a little bit more true than it used to. Well, I used to be able to teach subjects that I didn't even necessarily believe in as wholeheartedly, but I knew how to talk about them in a way that was appropriate for the space. Um, you know, some people would call that bullshitting. And so you don't do that anymore. No. Yeah. We just don't do we now, now being authentic and true to myself and honest has become the norm. And so when I have to fake it, um, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. It feels gross. Let's talk about where that was coming from though. Was that coming from the career that you thought you needed to be in or what was that experience of teaching people stuff that you didn't even necessarily believe in, but that you had head smarts about where was that coming from? That's a great question. Um, I have worked with professionals to help me be able to have answers to those questions, but I wouldn't have known answers to those questions if that makes sense. Um, so my answer to that question is I, you talked a little bit about you're always trying to help people not feel alone. Um, my, my like drive desire, but then also the fear component of that was always to help people um, always help ease the burdens of other people um, always help make things better rather than worse. And um, so sometimes when you're in a situation and uh, somebody is hurting or having a hard time or trying to find out answers to something, I mistakenly, would try to give them what answers I thought were appropriate for the situation or were, were the answers I was taught to give people. Like when someone's struggling with this, you tell them these things. Um, and rather than being present with them, listening to them, just being myself, being okay with my own answers um, and understanding that that had some beauty, magic therapy inside of it um, for everybody. Um, you know, if people want to be known and want to be helped and encouraged, sometimes just being yourself and sitting next to them and telling the truth is a very encouraging experience. Um, having somebody just recite answers that are what you think you should be hearing isn't always that helpful and useful. And so I think it's just a better way of, um, being myself. I also hung out in pastor world for a while and a lot of people who are, leading groups and this is true in business or nonprofit work or religious work are struggling deeply, 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 but don't have a space. If a pastor gets up on Sunday and starts sharing some of the things that they're like working through or dealing with or struggling with or failing at, you might develop a strong community. The donation plate's not going to be that great uh, that week. It's just not a sustainable way to run it, the mechanics and business of those things. So, all that to say is I just, I was near a lot of people who were very quote successful. I met so many pastors who fantasized um, about not being a pastor. Like I would li they would like literally have dreams of doing something else or just volunteering somewhere and not having to lead something. Like they, it was these people who wanted to help these communities, but were just in the wrong spot. And they had kind of pigeonholed themselves into it and didn't see a way out. Yeah. I mean, when that's the, when that's the place where you're, you're, rent gets paid from, you know, I feel like there are a lot of people, even kids in college or people in a job 
that are pigeonholed into the same kinds of situations where they, they know they don't want to be there and they're just not making the choice to change things. Yeah. Uh, we, we run this, we have a workshop we do every three months called upgrade your side hustle. And it is just, uh, it is just a panel where we have four people who aren't even doing something yet full time, come and talk about whatever the mess they're in the middle of. Um, you know, they're like, Oh yeah, I have this full-time thing. I wish I could work on this. I don't know how to do taxes. Like they just say all the, they just tell the truth. And it is the most energizing experience for all of the attendees. People afterwards, like you could charge a hundred dollars for this. And I, we charge like 10 to pay for beers. (laughs) And, uh, I'm just, I'm like, this is non-experts teaching other people who don't know what they're doing and just saying, it's okay that we care about this stuff together and we'll like, we can work on it. Um, so many people have launched, we've done that three times, um, for the last nine months. And we've had people who like launch their business. Other people like come and talk to me like, Oh, my friend came to your workshop and she just like her business took off. I was like, what workshop was it? She's like, upgrade your side hustle. I'm like, that is literally, I just ask questions to people who kind of don't know what they're doing yet. Um, but that's the world we all want to live in is we want to live in a world where other people look at us and we look at them and we're like, I get you, you get me, you're screwed up. I'm screwed up. I don't have to pretend to be perfect. Neither do you. Um, and that those workshops that we have are full of people who make really good livings. Our team always tries to be mindful about not taking too many photos of the audience and their faces um, because a lot of their bosses wouldn't be super excited um, to know that somebody else is at something trying to work on their side hustle rather than working on their thing. Um, people want to, people want to live a life that is congruent and meaningful and has integrity. And you know, what is on the outside is matches up with what's on the inside and um, they can be themselves and live inside of that freedom. And it takes a lot of work, but living that way is a very useful thing for being successful in business you know, I, nothing's going to come out about me that people don't know already. Um, there's not something, there's not like a secret about me you could learn that would make you not listen to me or make you, you were a client and then you're not a client. Um, my friend who's a, a business coach for executives, he, he always says there's no pretense. Um, there's no faking it. We don't have to pretend. Was that Chris McAllister? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that's kind of where that's like where all of that comes from. That's where the creativity feels meaningful. It's where the life, the deep work and the shallow work of, you know, I, mean, I could talk about all of this, but I also need to help a skincare line um, market to women in a way where it gets more customers. But also hopefully if we can do it well, not put forth marketing that makes women just feel bad about themselves and feel, you know, ashamed of how they look. Um, and so we, we're trying to like live, we're trying to, it'd be a lot easier if we just like shut up and made stuff. But I, I say this to Allie all the time. Like sometimes I'm just like, oh, it would just be so easy if we just sold things and then just did whatever clients wanted and then went home and like didn't care. Um, that would be relaxing in a way. But the world we're living in now is such that if you, if you do that another four or five years down the line, you're going to get lapped by somebody that's, doing it from the heart. Yeah. Because now you can see all of that. Yeah. Or I'm going to have like a mental breakdown because of stuffing what I care about. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever just kind of stuffed the things that you care about down and, and felt the effects of that? 
Yeah, not because I was not because I was um, not because I hate church environments. Just the environment living inside of that world wasn't probably what I should have been doing. Um, knowing myself, knowing how I was wired, knowing all of that stuff, um, wasn't probably quote the right choice, but it was the choice I made at the time to pursue that. And I understand why I did it. I, but during that time, I didn't get a chance to be, um, I didn't get to be authentic for a while. Um, if that makes sense. Do you feel like the things that you were doing on the side, like setting up your own blog and, and commenting on stuff that other people were putting out there and do you feel like the things that you were doing when you weren't in class were closer to like an authentic version of yourself? Yeah. Reading and having discussions and yeah, all of that stuff was so much more real than what was happening in class. When you were in school, were the people around you, like your family, your parents, your grandparents, were they kind of expecting that that was going to be your path? Not saying they were pushing it on you, but that they kind of looked at you and thought, oh, this is what Adam's doing with his life. And then this is going to happen. And then at some point that changed. Like, how did you, how did you end up shifting away from what you did in school to what you're doing now? And like, how did you sort of explain that to the people in your life or did, or did you even have to? Yeah, no, I, um, I definitely did. Um, I, I had to explain I didn't have to. My family has always been crazy supportive of the stuff I was doing, um, which has been really cool. And have even told me like outright how much they either respect certain parts of whatever we're doing or they've been very good at communicating support, which is I'm very thankful for. And I feel like puts me in a very small minority of people who have that kind of relationship with their, their family and world. Um, and both Allie and I have that. We've had really cool things from our parents and grandparents and family that have been awesome. Um, so it wasn't like this, uh, it wasn't a dramatic sort of thrashing against whatever the world expected me to do. Um, it was a little, I know people probably expected me to be a pastor for 50 years, mostly because that is what I had set the expectation to be. Um, you know, that that's kind of probably how I marketed and branded myself. Um, and you don't write, you know, hundreds of posts on the internet and people read them and, um, and then be like, well, I'm not doing that anymore. You know, that's a, that's, you have to explain, you have to explain that nobody was like too hard on me for it. I think it's super interesting when people put a lot of work into something and then they can just be radically honest with themselves about this just isn't who I am. This isn't what I'm going to do. So I'm going to go do something else. It was good while it lasted. Yeah, no, it it took me like six years to understand probably what was happening in that, like what that transition actually was going on. But it was just this thing of like, I know this isn't right. I know this isn't right. I know this isn't right. And, you know, the kind of, the kind of conversation is like, if I had a lot of money, I wouldn't go back into work tomorrow, right? But I didn't have a lot of money, so I had to go back into work. So I just started to like try and figure that out. So were you really frustrated in what you were doing? I was frustrated at everything, everyone you know, I was just like dissatisfied in all directions. And it wasn't, um, I don't know that somebody could have helped me feel satisfied. Like there's not something that could have changed. 
you know, um, even though it's what you thought you wanted to do for so long. Yeah. I, if you're, if you're a person who's just pissed off at everything around you, you have an anger thing that you should work on. And I, for a while was like, just, you know, pissed off at the world around me. You, you, it's not in every industry and sort of community. Probably you can find people who just always find something to complain about or critique or to point out this should have been this way and not this way. And I was always that. Um, and the longer I've owned a business and had my own thing that I'm making, that is the thing I'm doing, the less my critique brain has, it's too busy being creative or trying to do something productive to be sitting around being, you know, ticked off at something else. It's not, it, it's not busy trying to deflect your own self-criticisms because what you are doing, you know, is not right. Yeah, correct. What was the tipping point? for you where that changed, you know, what was the final straw where you just knew that something had to change there? And how long did it take for you to become self-aware of that? I was, yeah, I was always the person when I would hang out with other people who worked inside of churches, I would complain the most. They might agree with me or like, um, play along, you know, uh, the same way if a friend's talking about how their work sucks, you're like, yeah, your boss does sound dumb. But I just would go much further and longer than them. And as I was asking them about what they were doing, you could tell that same like frustration wasn't there. So there was a moment where I wasn't working at a church, but I thought I would again soon. Like I thought that was going to be the next thing I was doing anyways. And I was just like moving from one organization to the next. And um, I remember Allie and I were about to go to some church related function. And as we were driving there, we both had a ton of anxiety, almost like we both started feeling that a lot, almost like nervousness, anxiety, uh, a ton. And we just were like, it was one afternoon. It was like on a weekend. And I was like, let's just go get pancakes instead. Like, let's not go. Let's go do this instead. Um, Cause it was just like, Oh man, this, this thing that I feel like I have to do is causing me a lot of anxiety. And I don't, why would I, why would you go do stuff that causes you a lot of anxiety unless you just have to, unless you're forced. Um, and so I just started mining and excavating the real reasons, um, the things I really wanted in communities and relationship and in people, other people encouraging me in spirituality, in my own thoughts, beliefs, um, and what I wanted to get out of life and what I wanted to get out of religious organizations and what I wanted to get out of all of that. And Allie and I made a list of those things and we figured out a way to get all of those without sitting inside of a structured organization. It was that driving to the event and having, you know, just overwhelming anxiety. Um, the type of person gets before public speaking, but you're not public speaking. You're actually just going to a place where no one even will know you. It's you can just be anonymous. So there's something about all of that that we just had to figure out. Um, growing up, a lot of my identity was wrapped up in that was the job I was going to have. Um, and I thought that was unique to religious organizations. We've worked with a lot of lawyers and doctors and successful people who have opted to start their own companies and do their own creative, interesting things. And I find that it's pretty universal that when somebody has like a, it, what would be like a specialized career or something you go to school specifically for, and then you kind of jump out of that. Um, a lot of times our identity and who we kind of believe we are gets wrapped up in what our title is or what our job is or career is. And so 
it, it, that took, you know, that took um, a lot of unraveling to do, but it was that moment driving where I just like, this is, doesn't feel right. And I don't know how to explain all of this. You know, my wife didn't know how to explain all of it. Here we are living in a city where we don't know a lot of people. We moved here for me to have this job. Um, and yeah, we just had to figure it all out really. That feeling you're describing reminds me of something I read about a year ago. And, and I found out later, it's actually the title of a book that I ordered the other day and I'm going to read it. Um, I was reading about a lot of different psychological things um, just to try to explain some of the feelings that I was having in my own life about different things. And this phrase popped up that just made so much make sense to me. And the phrase was the body keeps score. Ah, that's nice. That's a book. Yeah, that is a book. I just found that out from one of my clients who's a psychotherapist, actually. I told him because we were talking about something that I was writing about with him. Mm. And I explained what I just explained to you and said, you know, that phrase was the body keeps score. And he turned around and pulled it off of his shelf and showed it to me <laughs> and said, that's actually a book and it's really good. You should read it. So I ordered it and I'm going to, I'm going to really, really dig into that. But you're like, I don't need to read the book. Cause I just wrote like a small paragraph that summarized. Yeah. So I, that's funny. No, that's really cool. One of the benefits of studying what I studied in college was that it was very educational brain science. Like we had a lot of that thrown in there and especially working with young adolescents and teenagers in youth ministry, I, studying teenage brain science was fascinating. Uh, so I was doing a lot of that and um, just on my own, I was doing a lot of reading in that. And so I ran into a couple of books that talked about the subconscious or how our subconscious works and that uh, our subconscious is brilliant and it, it reacts with us in a physical manifestation. Literally, it sends electrical current from our brain into our skin so that we feel and sense fear. Um, but it's a very physical thing. I mean, feelings are a physical manifestation. And it's like, like we're experiencing that with the conscious part of our brain and then interpreting that into other stuff yeah. as well, which is super interesting. Yeah. So it's almost like our emotions become, they became for me in processing all of this in my career and journey, I would just do some stuff and then be like, oh, that made me feel something. And then we just go trying to figure out what that feeling meant. I never did anything crazy dramatic. You know, I never did like a flip someone off and like leave the office and change my name and move to a new city. You know, I never did like, I never burnt down my, all of my relationships and never, you know, told every place I ever worked, they could go screw off and do something else. But you just do these like little, you know, these like little tests. And that, that concept of the body keeps score is a useful thing to think about and remember. Yeah. The idea of doing little tests is interesting because it's easy if you're sort of early on in your career or you're just trying to do a creative thing for yourself for the first time, not because it's part of your job. It's really easy to look at everything else that everybody else has done. You know, all the super obvious stuff that stands out and gets a lot of attention and to think, Oh, well I can't do that. And it's like, it's, it's the visible stuff because you know, it's got all the attention. It's visible. It's easy to see, but you don't see all the things that it, took to get there. And it's like doing those little tests is an easy way to just try out a lot of different things and see what you like. And it's like, it's fine if it's low stakes, small stuff. It's fine if it sucks. Cause if you enjoy it, then you learned that you enjoy it and you can just try again and get better at it. Right. Yeah. Truth. Might as well try something. Yeah. When you got into doing coffee and you got into writing and you got into 
you know, running workshops. And even when you got into running the wonder jam, did you feel like there were a lot of things that you just weren't very good at? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and, no. and it didn't scare you away. It no. didn't scare you off of those things. So what did you do instead? I was like trying to think of any of those things that came like, not, I don't think anything came naturally. Um, you know, what came naturally to me, the thing I had been doing since I was a little kid was I didn't, I didn't realize I was an entrepreneur. And I didn't realize my dad was like setting me up to be that way. I don't know that he was setting me up to be that way. Um, what came naturally to me was operating inside of religious environments. Like that was just, that was like so easy and everything else was difficult. Um, and so I business wise, like for three years, we didn't know Jack about finances and we grew our business every year, but kept going a little bit further into debt every year. And like in our brain, we like could not make sense of any of it. We would work with clients. Like we just didn't, we didn't always have a lot of ways we didn't have easy ways for clients to work with us, um, which was fine starting out. Um, coffee, I like didn't, there was, a, there was a guy, the first time I ever sold coffee was at a market. There was a guy who showed up who, as soon as he started talking, you know, 95% of the people I talked to, I knew so much more than they did. But a couple people started asking me questions and I was like, I barely even know the terms that you're saying. So I, I just learned to not try to pretend like I knew what I was doing, which, you know, the the downside of that is Allie and I will both say this is the the Wonder Jam has never had a big break like we've never had a month that was three times the month before it we've never had a year that was double the year before it um, so we've never had this like massive growth thing mostly because we just don't put ourselves in situations where we're telling people we can do things that we've never done before normally we're in a space where someone's like hey can you help me with my brand and they just mean they want a logo but we were like, yes, we will. But then we give them like a whole brand, if that makes sense. We do like a whole bunch of positioning and market strategy and all the, you know, uh, market research and stuff like that. And they're like, whoa, this was way more than I wanted. So we just do that three times. And then now we sell people like the full brand um, experience, but we had just done it three times and we just gave it to people as bonuses. Because it gets you, it gets you to the point, like it's a stepping stone that gets you to the point where that is a thing that you can sell. So you're just yeah. kind of iterating on what you were already doing. Yeah. Yeah. We always get paid what we're worth after we've done it a couple of times. And that's been the, that's been the case for everything for the coffee for creative writing. I still don't know what that's worth or not worth. There's something also about just having a thing that's not a business, but I don't sell. Your coaching was the same way because I remember a couple of years ago, you wrote this really great post that I loved about how you raise your prices. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit about like how your coaching program started out and then how you have talked about raising your prices openly? Yeah. And why that structure kind of worked out for you? Yeah. No, people, when I started, we had a client who was trying to work with us. Her name was Tierney. She's a photographer in Indianapolis. She's amazing. Her photography is so cool. And it always has been cool. But she was, at the time, she was a nanny. She was nannying. And she was like, I hate this. And she wanted a website because she thought that was going to change her business. And everyone that we've worked with, we knew at the time that a new website doesn't make you make people know about you and hire you. It's just one tool in the many tools you need to use to communicate. I go, why don't we do this? I go, I have a coaching program that I walk people through. It's four sessions and I, I like you. So I'll do it for free. And I'm, so we walked through those four sessions and I was like, after that, 
I tweaked it and changed it and I learned from it. And then I charged a hundred dollars. And then every 10 people I worked with, I increased the price a hundred dollars. And so after doing that, I got to the place where my prices were or at a thousand dollars and I just restructured my coaching flow and program. But it just it went from zero dollars to a thousand dollars. But by the time people were paying a thousand dollars, I'd worked with a hundred people. And so it was just very there was a lot of experience behind it. And so you were able to iterate the content of that program as well. Yeah. It's not as if you were just leaving the content the same and then raising the price, the more popular it got. Yeah. No. Because of the experience, you were able to improve it. Yeah. No, it changed a lot. And my ability to see patterns inside of what people were stuck on and help them just get over the place where they were, they were broken um, was good. I had a couple of people who just met with me a couple of times and they were just like, this is good. I don't need to keep coming back. And I was like, yeah, you do have a lot to work on. So I just like bank their future sessions for someday in the future. Is there anything you see a lot of holding people back in particular with the people you work with? Yeah. These are two sides of the same coin, but there are some people who are dreamers who have really nice plans, but they have a hard time executing. And then there are people who are executors who can do the work, who are the machines and the engines, but maybe have a hard time with that layer of structure that goes, you know, um, on the inside of a business. Like we meet a lot, I meet a lot of people who are monsters of, creativity, designers, photographers, people who are just, if I hired them, like if I ran their company and I was their boss, they would be the best. They would make a ton of money. They would do anything. Um, but they have a hard time or they struggle with that. How do I price myself? How do I manage my time? How do I book projects? How do I figure out how to have a client trust me, but also give all of my creative input? You know, all of that stuff's difficult. Um, they're usually stuck in one of the two. The difference I made to my coaching program is I just I split that in half. Um, so for some people I cover all of it and then others, I just cover one or the other. So the structure the marketing or the, the quote business part of it is difficult. And then the other part of it, the it's almost like a productivity thing. There's a number of people I work with who are good at networking, good at explaining themselves, good at sending a proposal or having a sales call, but can really benefit from scheduling out the actual work. I think of it a little bit like the CEO and the factory worker. And when you're a one person business, you're both, you have to thrive at both and you have to make time for both. Definitely. I definitely feel that. <laughs> See, I, yeah, I know. I, and I, I'm the same. Yeah. It's like, even, even for you two, like there's still only two of you making all the decisions and that's still a lot of ground to cover. My goodness. Yeah. And I, I pretty quickly, I learned that Allie and I being I would say having a partner who I can be open and honest with in my business and who I can be critical of, but also can be critical of me. And we don't take that all too personally. It's actually more comfortable when we're critical of each other in work than at home. Having another set of eyes and another set of hands to help out on stuff is, you know, sometimes all you need to the point I've watched people have bring on business partners when they should just hire someone, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, so I think figuring all of that out, it's crazy. They don't teach you how to be a one-person business in college. There's very few courses on it. And I ended up calling my coaching program the black market business partner with the idea of I would be your business partner, but I don't get any equity. <laughs> but the, the, um, because Allie had a couple of friends that she was talking to about business and she's like, honestly, and she's like, I don't even feel comfortable telling you to buy something from us, but you should do coaching with Adam. 
And they're like, yeah, I've been looking for a business coach. And I was like, what do you want out of that? She was like, I just want a partner. There's a number of people who just said, I just want a partner. And, you know, it's one thing to work with somebody who fixes your books or tells you how to do marketing or tells you how to hire people, like fixes a specific problem. But a lot of people are like, I don't know. I just need to like be able to talk through a hundred things with somebody. Yeah. A lot of people I think make the mistake of thinking that's an equity thing. Yeah. To need a partner when in reality, a lot of the time it's just about having extra eyes on what you're doing that are invested and care in some way about your success so that you can see your business through somebody else's eyes. Yeah, totally. Well, this was an awesome conversation (laughs) for the people that are listening to this who might be on the fence about something they want to do. Is there anything you'd say just to encourage them in any way, shape or form? Yeah. Uh, This is on the spot. I say this all the time though. The phrase I use I need to make a shirt of this, is kill your dreams. Meaning, if you try something and it sucks and you hate it and it makes you want to throw up and you don't like how you feel and everyone thinks you're bad at it, you'll just do it once and you won't sit around hoping that you get a chance to do that again. Your brain will move on to another thing to care about and be passionate about. Um, But if you let that stuff linger, you will grow bitter and, and sad and regret it. That's awesome advice. Yeah. I try try to take it when I can. Man, can you make a shirt out of that? Like I actually want, I want that because that's so kill your dream shirt. We can do it. Yeah. That's so in line with my own experience too, because from the time I was eight until the time I was 18, I wanted to be an architect. Mm. I I went to, I did, I took drafting classes in high school and everybody knew that I was going to go off to Virginia Tech and get into architecture school and be mm. a great architect one day. And then I got there and started to just think about the practical reality of what that life would look like. Yeah. And started to do a lot of research on the internet about what an architect's day is like. And a lot of it was not enough pay, boring projects that are just boxes inside of boxes, long hours, lots of overtime potentially a lot, a lot of travel. Yeah. And the whole reason I got into architecture in the first place was I went to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland when I was eight and I saw the Naval Academy chapel that had been built 200 years before or however many years before it was. Yeah. Inside of it, I saw a scale model of the entire Naval Academy grounds and I looked at that and I thought, wow, this is amazing. I want to do this. Like I want to be able to make things like this. And then I got into it and I realized the reality of it was very different from this romantic idea that I had of it. Yeah. You know, the, the, the things that I do now are very much creative in the same spirit that I wanted to be creative with an architecture. Yep. They're just in a different medium. And sometimes I think, I think it's important to get at the heart of why you want to do something in particular and then figure out what your options are from there, like reverse engineer that desire to find out what's at the heart of it. Because then you might find out that architecture or, you know, pastor school, they're not the ultimate expression of the thing that's really inside of you. They're just the best option you knew about at the time. That's so true. And something so, so real, so almost physical, like being in a space and being like, oh, I like how this feels. I like what I, this dream that I have now, I really like that. I'm going to go chase after that. But, you know, understanding 
young you, young me, we didn't have all the information. Uh, we just had that little bit and, you know, ran after something and we're like, Oh, this was maybe I got to a place that I'm not trying to get to now. Let's see what we can do next. You know, it's so useful. Cause I think so much of, I mean, it's not, you don't have to search very hard to read an article about how college doesn't work that well anymore or, you know, the expectations that the previous generations have on new generations about how many kid, kids to have or houses to buy or mortgages, to, like all of that stuff isn't working anymore. Um, and so you have this whole generation of people who end up becoming like 18 or 25 or 40 and they're like, hmm, this isn't what I thought I was going to be. And I got to go figure something out, you know, I got to go figure out what to do next. And for our generation in particular, it's really interesting because a lot of the stuff that's not working anymore was working when we were born. And a lot of the stuff that's working now did not exist 15 years ago or when we started college. Like a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that our careers are built on did not even exist 10 years ago. Yeah. My, my younger brother is 10 years younger than me. He just graduated from college. And, you know, I, th- I think it's, it's um, I have a lot of, we have interns who work for us or we have young people who are a year out of college who work for us. And we, it's mind blowing to me the way that generation would wait around for a good job or a good opportunity where when you and I graduated from college, it was like, you know, 2008, 2009. I had a number of friends who went and got a, their master's just because they were like, I can't get hired. So I'm going to defer, you know, I'm going to stop paying student loans for a while. Right. I know a lot of people that did that. It's crazy. And, but it made sense. You're like, well, you can't, and I owed 900 bucks a month and I can't pay that no matter where I go work. So I'm going to go to grad school. And I think now we're at a time when the economy is good and there are jobs. I think right now I just read a thing that was like, there's more open positions in the country than there are unemployed people. <laughs> but it's the matchup of like every restaurant in Columbus, Ohio is hiring right now. Every place is hiring. Those are typically not jobs that people with college degrees go and apply for. Um, so there's this real like misalignment of that. And meanwhile, and, and here's, a, here's an interesting thing that I think says a lot about the future of a lot of different degree programs too. When I was 14, I was part of a small subset of kids of my generation who would go and pirate $100, $200, $300 software like Flash and Photoshop and then teach myself to do that. And then by the time I was 18 or 19 and then I got into my arts program, I was four years ahead of everybody in my class. I was already to the point that I could start doing work and charging for it while I was being educated about how to do that stuff. Mm, isn't that wild? I think that's so, it's so true. My brother just graduated with a computer science degree. He went to Indian University, which has a nice program. Um, but he would also say, he's like, you know, MIT or Stanford has those programs going through the same textbook up on iTunes or up on somewhere else. He was with, with like the, the best lecturer in the country. Um, so he would, to supplement what he was doing in his classes, he would also do, you know, he would also listen to lectures from Stanford, those other places <laughs> to this point, he, as you would be, if that was the scenario you were in for four years, he was always pretty close to just dropping out and teaching himself much to neither of my parents went to college. So us going to college was something that was important and all of their kids graduated from college. So that was something they're proud of. But much to my frustration to my parents, he was always about a, a half day away from being like, I can just do this, learn this stuff online. Yeah, I had a friend in Virginia Tech's computer science program, and he did it for four years. 
and enjoyed it and he graduated like the skills that he got from that degree program he gave him a good foundation but he actually took a year off after that moved in with his parents and just spent a year learning iOS development on his own oh wow and then he put an app out that he built for Pinboard which is a bookmarking service and then when it was time for him to go look for a job, he got a job with that skill set right away. Yeah, when we were in school, um, doing flash programming was like a big deal. Immediately upon graduation, I remember that was always like the thing where they would be like, oh yeah, for flash animations, you make like $100 per second, like was this rate that we were told that everyone gets paid. And we ended up, you graduate and the original, and I don't even know if it's still true, but original iPhone, Safari didn't, didn't load Flash. It's still true. Yeah. It's still 100% true. Flash is basically dead because of that. Yeah, so it just stopped. And now it's, it's insane just how backwards, especially in those degrees that are just, the, all of that information is like on a blog post somewhere. Flash is actually the thing that I stole when I was 14 and taught myself. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah, I'm, I'm glad I got into a lot of other stuff because if Flash was the thing that I went all in on, yeah, then I, that would have hurt. Yeah. It's wild. It's wild. Yeah. Wow. Great conversation. Yeah. I appreciate it. Before we go, let's get like a question of the day for the listeners. Is there anything you want to ask them or anything you want to know? It doesn't have to be anything serious. It could be serious. It could be fun. Just throw something out there and we'll see what we get. What is an opinion that you used to have that you no longer hold, but you used to hold it strongly, but you've changed your mind? That's a good one. I'm excited. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to talk to me. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. I had a great time. I did too. Thank you. Thank you.